You're listening to episode 6 of the Ecology Podcast. I'm your host, Arun Dai Nandan, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Charles Plazier and Kyle Grant. This week, we're talking about natural selection, managing forest fires, and selection on humans. So this week, we're talking about natural selection. Natural selection is the key mechanism through which evolutionary change occurs and has led to the near-infinite number of modifications that we see in biological diversity in the world today. In order for natural selection to occur, there's three conditions that must be met. First, there must be variation, so individuals differing from each other within a population. Second, these differences must be inheritable, that is, they can be passed down from one generation to the next. Thirdly, they must be different. there must be differential reproductive success among individuals in the population. So in other words, individuals with some set of traits must be more successful at surviving and reproducing in their environment than some other individuals of the same species. Natural selection does not act on genotypes, but rather on phenotypic differences between individuals in a population. It is important to note that a gene codes for a trait only in the environment in which it is present. So in other words, a gene's effect must be taken in combination with the full range of environmental parameters that exist for the organism itself. All the possibilities of a gene's effect, which is known as the gene's expression, is known as the norm of reaction. Variation in a phenotype can be due to variation in only genes, variation in only the environment, or a combination of the two. Natural selection can only operate if the traits are inheritable, as I mentioned earlier, which is to say that they can be passed on for that from one generation to the next. And this requires that there be a genetic component to the variation of a trait within a population. The genetic component must also have fitness consequences or benefits as defined by the expected success of an individual with those traits relative to the other individuals within a population. Now, an adaptation refers to a trait that's arisen through natural selection that is inheritable and increases the fitness of the organism in its living and non-living environment in the present day. The term for a trait that serves a purpose in the present day, but evolved under different selection pressures and historically served a different function, is known as an exaptation. This underlies two potential explanations for the evolution of complex traits, that intermediate traits were adaptive and served as a function, a sort of function similar to what exists in the present, or that intermediate traits were previously unrelated traits that were co-opted for these new purposes. It should be noted that a trait doesn't necessarily have to lose its original function and that sometimes traits can actually serve multiple func functions or purposes. On a genetic level, the process of gene sharing occurs when a protein that serves one function in one part of the body is co-opted to perform a completely different function in a new location. In addition, gene duplication occurs when instead of moving to a new location, a protein duplicates itself, allowing the duplicate, this clone, to take on the new role while the first one continues its original function. Some genes can affect more than one trait and are known as pleiotropic genes. And, uh, and when pleiotropic genes have a negative effect in one context, say possibly due to its evolutionary history, but a positive effect in another, it is known as antagonistic pleiotropy. Limitations exist as to the end products of natural selection. So there's generally the rate of adaptation is proportional to the supply of new variation that is available in the population. Uh, that's to say that a population cannot change faster than the rate at which new changes can occur. This can occur through gene flow, such as when individuals with different traits from different populations generated under different selective pressures enter the current population. Uh, in addition, selection may be unable to act on a trait if the genes involved are linked to other characteristics. So randomly occurring mutations can overcome all of these 
Given enough evolutionary time, as even the smallest differences in fitness can translate to large-scale changes when observed at these levels. There's other major limitations which exist uh, for the process of natural selection. So first, there's physical and mechanical laws and constraints. Secondly, there's the physical environment itself. So the and in the case of coevolution, the living environment, which is constantly shifting. And, and so in that case, species are actually unable to fall into an optimized phenotype. So there's no foresight in the, the process of natural selection. And so this cannot predict the downstream effects of these new traits. And so from, from here, we'll now go from, uh, from this intro about natural selection to a, a paper that, uh, that Kyle has, has chosen and will present to us. All right, yeah. Uh, so the paper that I've chosen for today is a review from Trends in Plant Science, and it's titled Evolutionary Fire Ecology, Lessons Learned from Pines. Uh, so fire represents a recurrent disturbance that's been uh, present ever since the appearance of uh, the first terrestrial plants. So a question that's been posed is how uh, the selective pressures of fire may have influenced evolution on various plant species, given that plants, unlike animals, have no effective means of escaping fire. So the review looked at uh, the fire adaptive traits of pines, which are a genus that's been relatively well studied in respect to fire ecology and essentially uh, reviewed how these traits may enhance uh, their fitness under different fire regimes. So the author starts by uh, breaking pines up into three strategies for coping with fire pressures. Uh, the first of these are fire tolerators, which could be characterized as having traits that uh, essentially mitigate the effects of fire on the tree. Uh, some examples of these traits may be um, trees that have self-pruning branches that fall off near the bottom of the crown, which prevents the fire from uh, spreading up into the tree. Fire tolerators may also have thickened bark at the base of the tree to protect, uh, protect vascular cambium or epicormic buds, which are uh, buds that reside below the surface of the bark, uh, protecting them from the heat of the fire. Fire tolerators also can increase um, the frequency of understory fires through the adaptation of needle morphologies that increase the chances of fire spreading. So essentially they increase the flammability of litter by producing needles that are thin and long, uh, which reduces the needle compaction when they fall to the ground and increases airflow through the litter. So by increasing the likelihood of fires occurring, uh, fuel is prevented from building up in the understory. And although the fires may be more frequent, they're less intense and therefore less likely to impact trees in the area. So the second pine strategy is what the authors refer to as fire embracers, which rather than mitigating the effects of fire have actually adapted, um, adapted aspects of their life cycle around the fire disturbance. So for example, fire, embrac uh, fire embracers may uh, possess cones which only open after being exposed to high temperatures imposed by the fire which means that fire in a lot of cases may be required to fully engulf the crown of the tree uh, for seeds to properly disperse. Fire embracers may also be characterized by uh, semi-parous life cycles, where trees experience a single reproductive event that's synchronized to a periodic, somewhat predictable fire disturbance in the area. So following this theme, fire embracers will generally have uh, non-overlapping generations and very fast regeneration times in order to ensure that uh, reproductive maturity is reached before the next local fire cycle. So um, the final pine uh, strategy discussed is that of fire avoiders, 
Uh, fire avoiders are essentially species that have adapted to uh, existing habitats that have infrequent fire disturbances. And thus these species will generally lack many of the fire traits mentioned above, since the energetic cost of maintaining the traits uh, may outweigh the benefits. So this uh, last strategy kind of highlights the importance of remembering that uh, many of these fire adaptive traits may be extremely costly to plants, and therefore they may only be maintained in regions where fire frequency is high enough to justify uh, the cost of maintenance. Another key aspect to mention uh, is that uh, differing strategies in how trees cope with fire can lead to vast differences in the dynamics of genetic structure uh, of the dynamics or genetic structure of the population. So as an example, if we're talking about uh, fire embracers where adult trees are completely wiped out during the fire and perhaps you know only a small subset of seeds from the tree are selected to propagate the next generation, local adaptation may be occurring much faster in these populations rather than populations that have alternative fire strategies. And um, so when we're thinking of uh, the persistence of these traits, we can kind of uh, envision a mosaic of populations of a single species that may be experiencing very different pressures depending on the local area they inhabit, uh, since the fire regimes will differ spatially. But um, on top of this, we can also add uh, the effects of additional pressures in the region, such as mutualistic or antagonistic interactions that may be imposing alternative selection pressures on the traits. So for example, um, in fire embracers, we see uh, that as fire frequency increases, we get an increase in the proportion of cones that remain closed in the tree rather than dispersing seeds early. Although one issue with cones remaining closed on the tree is that they may be preyed upon by seed predators. So in this case, uh, you have pressure from the fire to maintain the seeds in the tree and a predator pressure acting in the opposite direction, favoring trees that disperse seeds early. So these are some examples of how local environments may lead to trait divergence amongst populations. Um, the author states that um, additionally, understanding fire ecology could help improve management practices of pine woodlands and ecosystem management of other systems that are prone to fire disturbances. So in pine forests that are inhabited by fire uh, embracers or fire tolerators, uh, no burn policies may actually lead to detrimental effects on the ecosystem since you're essentially creating a, an abrupt change in the fire regime that's been acting on the population for uh, however many thousands of years. So the authors state that this could be seen as a new emerging paradigm in forestry where conservation authorities should not only maximize survival and productivity but also evolutionary processes of the population. Um, so overall, I think uh, this was a, a decent paper to sort of introduce natural selection and uh, using an example that's unique um, to what's typically taught, so something a bit different. So um, I'll start by just asking you guys, uh, what, did, what did you guys think of the paper? Uh, I thought it was very well written. Um, I mean, it's it's a review, of course, so it's uh, it's a great a great way to to kind of catch up on on some of the work that's been done. And I mean, we spoke about this, I think, last week. Um, you know, the idea of of some papers being very um, very targeted to a specific audience, and and so it can be sometimes tricky when um, when reading very um, 
you know, uh, dense literature in a specific field uh, when you're not when you're not necessarily um, already aware of all the lingo and the and the, the the literature behind it. So reading a review paper like this is, I, I mean, I always love to because it's a great way to to catch up on the on the work. Um, in terms of the the, um, the the content itself, I mean, I do like that they they separated these macro and microevolutionary processes um, in in the way that they're looking at this this development of um, of these fire fire traits. Um, so that was that was kind of my my first my first few kind of thought immediate thoughts. Um, but of course, I did have some questions based on on that in terms of um, kind of some of their uh, more I wouldn't call it circumstantial, but some of some of the things that they were they were suggesting, I thought maybe they could have actually maybe um, expanded upon, such as the role of the the frequency of fires, as you as you had mentioned, um, in terms of maybe aspects of, of rapid evolution. But uh, but but overall, I, I thought it was a great a great paper for that uh, for covering this this topic. Um, I have to say. I do agree with you, Arun, about um, the targeted audience is still present, but we have access to a glossary in the first page of the paper, which made it much easier to follow the idea of the authors. So indeed, it is a very well-written paper, easy to follow, and uh, interesting, um, not results, but more, more of an interesting review to look at as well. Um, in my opinion, I think that was more of a almost exploratory paper, you know, we don't have any breathtaking or groundbreaking uh, revelations in that paper. Um, we already have an idea that fire is a big, has a big selective pressure on on um, vegetation systems, but it's interesting to see the different uh, perspectives, microevolution versus mi microevolution. Um, in my opinion, the macroevolution part was a bit weak in the sense that um, it's hard to get good evidence of the actual impact of, of fire in the past, like 100 million years ago. But they did do a good job in looking at the different uh, studies that were done. And some studies had some drawbacks in the sense that some of the, um, of the phylogenetic relationships were not dated. So it was kind of hard to see uh, what, what uh, at what time, at what point in time were the, the fire becoming an evolutionary force. But later on, they mentioned that it was one article that I was able to find some sort of uh, date where fire became an important selective force uh, for trees to develop the way they did. Um, something else that I found really interesting, maybe it's the next point I could bring up. Um, you said, Kyle, maximize evolutionary processes in tree populations. So that would be a, um, a way for for conserv uh, for people, for um, actors in the field of, of uh, ecology to be able to, to conserve tree species with um, in the light of climate change so is there any way you would have an idea how how people could maximize these evolutionary processes in tree populations um i think well yeah it's hard to say because of course you're you're going on a case-by-case -case basis but i think in a lot of these cases the one way of kind of making sure that you're not disrupting the processes would be um making sure that whatever implementation that you're you're putting into that conservation program you're you're keeping it as natural as possible to how it was prior to um uh, the human intervention well i think that that brings up an interesting point we we mentioned that or we, we have chatted about this in the, uh, in a previous 
previous paper, um, the idea of natural and natural forests and what is natural. But I think another thing that we, we sometimes forget is some of the processes as well. So ignoring the, the community assemblages, but really looking at the processes that, that build up um, you know, whatever structure we see today. And in this case, that being fire, um, I mean, th these change, right? These interactions change, I would say, even faster than the, the community composition changes. Um, so if, if we go back, let's say, uh, as you mentioned, Charlie, they had, uh, they had some, some difficulty in, um, in, in getting specific timelines for the, the beginning of the, um, these, these fire traits appearing in, in the, the genus for, for pine. Um, but if we're, if we're looking at it over, over these period, I mean, let's, let's say we go with what they've kind of potentially found. So 126 million years ago, so between 126 million years and now, I mean, we've had, I mean, the KT extinction took place 65 million years ago, right? So more recent than, than the appearance of some of these fire, fire prone traits, um, there's, there's all sorts of changes that can occur within the interactions. And. I imagine even year to year, the fire regime must be changing, right? Based on whether you have more grasses in the environment versus more understory shrubs in the environment. Um, so do you think, I mean, it just, do you think that that would, that it's possible to really say what's natural in, in, in terms of a process, a natural process? And, and if we are, I mean, which one do we select for? Because I imagine everything is going to have a selective pressure, whether we like it or not. Well, I think you can you can certainly determine um, a natural process from um, sort of like a, an anthropogenic process. So when you're going in, if you're if you're keeping it, you know, as, as suitable to what's already there, you can ensure that at least you're not um, you're not diverting it away from how it is currently, right? Um, and, and just thinking about how the processes change. Um, just a, an interesting thing I was thinking about. In a way, um, these pine species are actually um, completely responsible for the persistence of fire in these regions. If you think about it, uh, especially the ones that are that are um, you know increasing the frequency of these fires. So, you know, you could think of it if you remove them from the community altogether, maybe those fire disturbances would almost completely uh, be a, an irrelevant impact uh, on that community. So what would happen at these these edges? I mean, the the these range edges would presumably begin increasing and decreasing between you know every year, every five years, every ten years, and you know new new pine trees will come up and and in certain stands and in certain stands the, the pine trees will die back, and and it's this very fluid structure. So assuming we we, we maintain the fire regime within the center um, of this patch. Well, what happens at these range edges? How do we control what the fire regime is there? Because in theory, we could, you know, increase the fire regime and, and maybe plant some more of these pine trees and, and that would allow for this, these faster, um, these, these faster uh, or more frequent fire fires rather to, to occur, but at the, at the expense of potentially the, the, the adjacent ecosystem. So how do we decide on that in, in these, it's just something that I was thinking of. How do we decide on on managing these areas that are at these borders? Yeah, I mean, I guess you could assume that that those borders are probably, um, you know, they're within the direct fire like impact zone of the fire. They they likely experience pressures as well and have their own um, adaptive means of kind of avoiding um, extinction from that disturbance. So I, I think what's really being advocated here is that. 
um, rather than trying to control the burns, just leave them and let them kind of happen as they naturally would happen. So it's not altering the, the physical processes that are happening within the community. So would this essentially be about controlling the borders of these processes? So they don't over they don't migrate towards inhabited inhabited the, the land. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, yeah. Perhaps you could you could just create like um like what would be called a controlled burn, right? So it's you you decide how how far you'll you'll let the, let it happen before you intervene. So I know some areas. I mean, this study specifically looking at at pine, um, or rather the the review. This was based mostly in in North America, or was it in, oh, in Spain? I guess the review was done in Spain, but they're using data from around the world, I suppose, in terms of different species of pinus. Am I correct in that? I think the two pieces of pinus, of pinus were more prominent in Spain and Italy, a bit more like, so, yeah, Southwest okay. Europe. Okay, European. So, European. <laughs> so when we're thinking of, of fire management and we look at a place like Australia, or even Canada, but but I'm thinking let's just you know head down down to the warmer climate for a bit. Um, we we see areas, especially in the Northern Territory, that have been have been under these these controlled fires, these these controlled burns for I mean potentially thousands of years, right? I mean as as for as long as people have lived in those areas, they've controlled the the burns by either um, setting up border plants which burn at different rates. Um, even in terms of farming practices, they, they, the indigenous communities in, in northern Australia and, and, and other parts of Australia as well, I mean, they had this, this controlled burn system where one region would be, um, would be you know, it, this patchwork would exist where some were burnt before others. And this was because the regrowth would actually encourage other species to come. So, for example, if, let's say you have three different patches and you burn one every year. Well, by the time you burn the third one, the first one has already started regrowing. And the plants that are regrowing in this new one, they attract species such as kangaroos, which would then provide a source of meat. Um, and then the second generation of the, these forests, you know, the, the, as they continue growing, they might provide um, another another species and, and, you know, fruits and things like that. And then the third one would be the, this kind of terminal forest and in the succession you have something else is produced and then you burn it again and, and it restarts. So it's used as a form of farming, in fact. Um, but this this has been happening for thousands of years. Um, and of course, there's also a component, a, a socioeconomic component. Um, so when we're making this management decision at these these areas, especially for a controlled burn, I sometimes wonder, um, not to harp on the natural <laughs> versus anthropogenic side again, but but more so, is there is there a right or wrong way to do this? I mean, in North America, I, I believe there isn't as much of this this fire farming practices that take place. So the decisions might be a little bit easier when it comes to deciding on whether we maintain an area or not. But what if, you know, in a certain region, in fact, um, I, I don't know if Australia has that this issue specifically, but, you know, maybe there might be other parts of the world where, in fact, the current fire management system that we're using um, where we're actually accepting that there's fires and allowing for these burns might actually be detrimental theoretically to uh, to the environment um, as opposed to perhaps just leaving them be. So almost the flip side of the argument that they're saying in, in this paper. So you're saying that we need that by by allowing them to burn that there could actually be detrimental effects. Exactly. 
do you think this is a possibility? I mean, it's... I mean, it's possible, especially if we're, like, if it's, um, I mean, the, the thing to remember, though, is, like, like we're saying, this is, like, a fire-adapted species, right? So it's, I mean, you could probably look at the frequencies of fires within the area, like, there's probably data on that, and you can track it, and if it's, like, you know, if you're getting a fire every year in the same area, well, you can kind of assume that this is, like, you could write off this habitat as a, a fire-prone region that's going to have fire resistant species and so if that's the case then um controlling the like trying to reduce uh, uh burns is like it, it's kind of counterintuitive but that brings up the idea of of rapid evolution right in these areas where there's uh, they mentioned in the paper that there's these extremely short um short generation times right so between one generation and the next it's shorter and shorter especially as the frequency of fires increase um, and that can lead to higher allelic diversity within a population. So in other words, the genetic diversity of this population will increase. Um, will it increase, though? I was wondering because that was my next question. Yeah, I don't know the, what they were uh, the next, I, I, would, I would expect the, the diversity to decrease because it would, they would have some sort of selection for one sort of, of seed from that population. If we're talking about the, the, um, the crown fires, uh, um, on on the uh, fire um, sorry i'm looking for my for my uh yeah it's the starting uh, here the fire embracer um so like the post fires the, the cedars the seeds will will probably be a bit more similar than than they would be if it was from a different sort of of a fire if it was an understory fire um we can see that there will be maybe probably more diversity but in the fire embracer with the short generation time and some sort of selection on these seeds i would expect the opposite i don't know yeah yeah, no, totally. So, so these fire embracers are actually reducing the uh, genetic diversity because you're essentially imposing them to, um, I guess you could look at it as like a pseudo bottleneck effect every time there's a fire, right? Because you're selecting, like you said, just a small proportion of these seeds that are gonna, you know, um, populate the next generation. Um, so I think if you're looking at the population in general. There's a there's a decrease in genetic d diversity, but if you're looking at say a meta population across multiple regions, you're you're probably going to have more um, intra-population um, variation and 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 local adaptation because they're being subjected to to um, I guess a quicker quicker selection almost. Exactly. So th I think the idea was. Um was that by shorting the generation time with more frequent fires, you're absolutely correct. There is this, this bottlenecking effect taking place where, you know, we're wiping out all these seeds and next thing you know, we have a, you know, only a subset of that, of that population that, that persists. But just the fact that the generation time is shortening and shortening, um, let's say maybe the amount of time it would, it would require for a certain amount of genetic variation to occur in a population was a thousand years, right? Or 10,000 years. And, the frequency of fires now increase, and now all of a sudden, for the same level of variation to occur, it takes only say a thousand years or a hundred years. Um, of course, these are very extreme examples, but just to get an idea of, of how these things can shift, because the rate of seeding out becomes faster. Because while it's true we would get a bottleneck at first, where only, let's say, a certain population, um, a, a subset of the population persists. Well, that that subset that persists would be. Um, would be would be trees or that would be generating seeds faster, right? They would get them out before 
the the next round of fires. And so the more seeds that are produced overall in a given time period, the more chance there is for increasing um, these, the, or rather the, the chance of these new new genes occurring in this population. Um, and so what I was what I was going from there is it, it opens up the possibility of, possibility of rapid evolution occurring right in these in these populations. And so that's where I was curious because now in an area where um, where the the speed of the evolution, so to speak, is taking is is increasing. Well, now the the natural or the population we want to maintain from a management perspective might have completely changed in a shorter time period than what we might see on an evolutionary time scale. So that's what I was I was trying to get at when we're thinking. Well, there's more genetic diversity with these shorter generation times. So does that and which we've seen, especially in in um, in, uh, in guppies, in, in David Red, uh, Resnick's work uh, in Trinidad, I believe, 70s um, or 80s, where he showed, you know, the, the effects of predation pressure on uh, on these guppies um, will actually change the way they um, they, they, they actually reproduce. Um, and you see this in a population level. Uh, these, these rapid changes can occur. So now at, at what point do we say that this is the natural one, this is not, especially when we're seeing on these large time scales the... Um, these, you know, what, what the, the evolutionary timescale might tell us one story, but the more present timescale might tell us another. Uh, right. Um, I'm just, I'm kind of getting caught up on like the, the increase in genetic diversity because to me, it's the mutation rate hasn't changed, right? So wouldn't there be a loss in, in um, I mean, I could be completely wrong, but wouldn't there be a loss in genetic diversity? Well, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I would, I would, I think what Arun means by the increase in genetic diversity is through time, you'll see more um, variation in the type of seed that will make it um, after the fire, basically. So um, I don't know if I'm making myself clear, but basically it's, there's going to be much more variation possible um, in the, in the long-term frame. Uh, whereas like you could see maybe some, more fit seeds one seed one year and I, I'm still caught up on a few things about that too in the, the sense that more genetic diversity through time I agree with that but does that will will that really have an effect since each year these trees will have to go back to the same level as an example like since the whole this whole population disappears and there's just new seeds popping up so is there really selection happening on these seeds or is just sees making it by chance as a bottleneck as a bottleneck as we're saying will there be a direction to these to in like will there be a directional selection in that sense or are we just looking at at bottleneck effects back to back every year after a fire well i think that 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 back to back changes exactly what allows for um for the directional selection i guess what i'm saying is it's almost like the the ability to change direction occurs faster if that makes sense right because there's this bottleneck effect. It, you know, let's say for every time there's a fire, it's a bottleneck effect, right? And there's a fire today, only a subset survives. Now, whether the next fire is 100 years from now or 1,000 years from now, right, that'll change what we have as a population, and then the next bottleneck effect will take place. But if we have a fire every five years, right, well, and, and, and let's say after the first bottleneck effect, we've already selected for, you know, after the first fire, we've selected for seeds that will then produce, or, or trees that will produce seeds, um, quickly, so essentially before the next fire takes place. Well, now what we're seeing is um, 
you know, it's able to to produce more seeds in the same amount of time as the previous population was. And yeah, as the previous population was. So in other words, the, the ability to change direction increases. So the more fires there are, the ability to, to shift with this, this changing landscape um, becomes faster, right? These, these trees now are able to produce seeds faster. And even, even if there is a bottleneck effect, the chances are there's a higher chance that there's going to be more seeds with, with, with traits that can survive that fire, the next fire, in, in the seed bank um, than there would have been beforehand, where there was much longer periods of time between fires. Does that, does that make a bit more sense? Yeah. So essentially, like you're saying a more rapid, they can more rapidly adapt to the new condition. Exactly. Because there's more, there's more, um, I guess, biomass to work with. Exactly. And, and more, more diversity to work with as well, right? Because you have more seeds being produced in a shorter period of time. Yeah. Right. So, so from there, that's uh, what I was saying. More, so more phenotypic diversity though. I don't know if you could say, I mean, I guess, yeah, I guess it would, that would kind of imply that there's genetic diversity as well. Um, there's sorry, a, what were you saying? Oh, well, well, that's what I meant from when now if we're taking that principle and, and extrapolating it over, you know, millennia, right? In this case, well, more than millennia, millions of years, <laughs> more than the thousands. And we're looking at evolutionary time scales. Let's say what they said, what, 129 million years or 89 million years uh, before, uh, before today. Well, I mean, let's say for, you know, like uh, for 100 million years, you know, let's say 129 million years ago. Let's say for 100 million years, it was the fire regime was one way. And then the last 29 million years, it was another way. Well, do we, do we go back to the 100 million years? Do we go back to the 29 million years? Because it might not be even possible to know what it looked like 100 million years at, for that 100 million years at the beginning because the, the genetic diversity has changed so much in the past 29 million years. Mm-hmm. So now when we're looking to restore an environment from the fossil record, especially with, with, um, with pine and, and trees like this, where we, where we have this, a, a good fossil record on, you know, unlike other like invertebrates and things like that, um, the, um, it's, it's, how can we make the decision as conservation managers and as biologists to say that, um, that there has been an increase or a decrease in diversity and, and make the decision as to whether we'll, will make it, um, you know, the, 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 the most recent uh, fire-induced fire, um, landscape or the earlier fire-induced landscape, when, it's, when the rate of change has changed between those two time points. Well, with this short generation time, if we're talking about the fire embracers, I think that's probably one of the only species that will be able, well, I can't say one of the only species, but that's definitely one of the adaptations that will allow them to keep up with the different frequency of that of the fire events. So the selection might change direction or change intensity, but at the same time, changing our or inducing fire in this environment to to keep the system as it used to be would be kind of absurd in my opinion because the 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 strategy of this tree species does imply that it will be able to keep up with the different changes because there's always selection happening every year. So do we need to correct for that by inducing fires? I, I personally do not think we should even act on that. That's my opinion. But Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, it's a, it's a good point because the thing is, like like we said, the regimes, they're, they're always changing. So if that's been happening over 
thousands and thousands of years, the trees probably have some kind of, um, they've kind of already adapted to, to deal with those kind of um, fluctuations and, and pressure. Um, I think, I think this is kind of bringing up uh, another good point that uh, we should talk about, which is, you know, when we're doing uh, restoration projects or reintroductions, uh, typically um, when we're selecting plants to, to do the planting, uh, we're choosing from plants that are uh, uh, based on the, on the amount of seeds they produce. So maybe we have a plantation where we're growing all these plants that are like, you know, really good producers. And maybe that's happened um, just by happen, happenstance. That's uh, some artificial selection that's being uh, imposed on them as well. But we're essentially picking picking seeds from, you know, these high producers and putting them into these environments. But, you know, we know that there's variation among populations and how they respond to these different regimes. So how do we know when we go in and we and we decide to do this restoration project that the seed bank that we're we're choosing these uh, seeds from has that genetic diversity to be able to, you know, handle these pressures and they're going to express traits that are um, essentially going to make them um, successful in the new environment. I guess it's, I mean, I'm not sure, especially in a fire, in a fire prone area when they're looking for these regions, if they actually kind of create this artificial fire system when uh, growing, I guess, the, the parent crops for these seed banks. But that's a very good, good point. I mean, it's, we generally do tend to to pick things that are easier for us to use. I mean, I guess that's the idea here by um, by by planting crops that have these high seed productions. In theory, we're 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 choosing plants that could potentially, you know, provide so many seeds at least one of them will be successful. Which is our you know our goal is ultimately to make sure that they successfully reproduce, right? At least two generations. Um, but but that's a good point, actually. I I really. I really have no idea because certainly not all plants are like that. I mean, there's some plants that no matter how much breeding and, and artificial selection we want to go for, there's no way we could get them to reproduce, um, reproduce at the same rate as, especially the the, the semelparis or iteroparis species that semelparis, uh, uh, semelparis, the single the single uh, reproductive event that um, I mean, how do we how do we decide upon upon those in those regions and actually yeah there's even in those desert regions you have other plants that are semelparis right i think aloe is an aloe a semelparis plant yeah, as well i think so yeah um aloe vera yeah it's a good question i've i really have no idea right, <laughs> even even within that um say it it's the exact same iteroparis um or sorry semelparis species that's been growing in the area but you've just sourced it from a different population well because the regimes are different when you introduce it back into this, you know, second second population, well, again, it, it may not have the adaptation to be able to deal with the fire regime there, and they essentially all get wiped out. So it's, it seems like a big issue to me. And, and maybe just a, a broader issue with captive breeding programs in general. Um, I was I was going to mention that, yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of like the uh, the work with with fish in the, in the hatchery system where we're we're looking to to breed fish in these hatcheries for reintroduction programs, whether that be for overfished waterways or that, or, or for recreational purposes in general, um, uh, or, or, you know, polluted, polluted areas, you know, whatever, whatever needs to be changed or, 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 um, or a quote unquote fixed. 
Um, it's exactly that. I mean, the, the selection pressures within a uh, within a hatchery are essentially non-existent, right? It's it's very much a relaxed selection pressure, and uh, and one can make the argument for for people as well. You know, we have a very relaxed selection pressure in terms of our our human human population, um, in in part different parts of the world, and um, and so when you're yeah when you're breeding breeding these organisms in captivity and and expecting to put them out in the wild and and have them survive and find especially something like salmon, which needs to you know, go out to sea and come back to, to, to spawn again and expect them to, one, find their way and, two, know what food looks like and that, in fact, food is not just you know, a flake that some guy comes and drops in every morning. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it, it certainly is a, is, a, is a difficult issue from the animal side. And, and in, I guess this has an analog with, with behavior, right? When we're looking at anti-predator behavior and, and foraging behavior and putting putting fish or whatever animal we might be be raising in captivity out in the wild and expecting it to to know kind of what to do <laughs> yeah. in a similar similar sense i guess in this case we're expecting these plants to know what to do um though that's that's evidently not always possible <laughs> right and uh, i think it's it's just good to note that it's not only relaxed selection pressures but there's actually altered selection pressures as well in the captive program so mm-hmm. uh, i know um i think in fish um, you're, you're essentially, you could be selecting for more aggressive uh, individuals because they're the ones who will go for, for food at the top of the tank when someone comes and feeds them. Um, and you can, you can also be, be kind of selecting against uh, shy versus uh, um, bold strategies. So again, like being a bold individual might not be the best uh, strategy in the natural environment for uh, uh, succeeding and propagating uh, or uh, producing offspring. Certainly, but then one could also say that that's also the issue with with natural populations, right? When we're when we're removing individuals from a population, whether that be through harvesting um, of plants, but also let's say of fish, we tend to be fishing out the bolder individuals um, from from a population. And so, and you know, if we're picking flowers out in a, in a field, we we're going to go out and pick the the brightest flowers. Um, right, and you and, have a bighorn sheep too, right? Um, Charlie, your lab, yeah, yeah. That, right? that's right. Yeah, uh, if you want me to elaborate on that, basically, there's artificial selection happening uh, uh, up in the west, western part of Canada, and near the Rockies, um, because it's a, I mean, area where the hunting is allowed. Uh, so bighorn sheep is uh, heavily hunted in some areas, and um, there's a rule that allows hunters to only um, hunt big orange sheep with a full loop. Their or their horn doing a full loop, and and part of their horn reaching uh, the tip of their horn reaching past their eye. So there is a selection for uh, against actually bigger individuals with longer horns. Um, and then there's a protected area where um, we have um, our my lab mates doing their work. And in this area, you can see also that the males are not pressured as much. And there was also an area in the national park, and you can see as far you go away from the from the edge of the national park, um, the size of the horns diminishes greatly because there's that selective pressure. So as much for animals, for fish, for mammals, or even for vegetation, this could happen. Um, so I, I think I mean I agree with your point, Kyle. That's for sure. Well, this this seems to bring up bring up also the idea of trade offs, right? When we're looking at 
at selection pressures, whether that be artificial selection, natural selection, um, fire-induced selection, or, or anthropogenic-caused selection. Um, you know, there's these ideas of trade-offs, and, and we mentioned it earlier. Um, actually, Kyle, when you were introducing the paper, the uh, the idea of these maintenance, cost of maintenance um, of some of these traits, um, because not all traits can be maintained equally. Um, similarly, not all traits are adaptive, I would argue. Um, perhaps that's that's a point of contention. But, um, <laughs> you know, whether all traits are, are, are indeed adaptive and, and yes, do they are all adaptive. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and and so um, because we, we are always talking about the present day. Right. Um, so so when we're looking at these selection pressures um, and, and we're choosing traits, I mean, there's there's going to be trade offs. Right. Whether that be shy, bold or what whatnot and, and forging trade offs and and. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a number I can keep going. But when we're now looking at, at these selection pressures affecting them, I mean, what trade-offs do you think exist, especially in this system here that's fire-controlled? Um, I mean, they mentioned a few here, but now when we're looking at actually ma- as, a, as a conservation manager deciding how to choose or, or which plants to put into an area um, out of a given seed bank, I mean, how do we, how do we decide on what to put where? And based <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I guess you'd have to. I, I'm assuming that the the species that you're reintroducing have been sourced from a population under very uh, similar selection regimes. So I think that's kind of, in a way, how you would control for that. And and not saying that would necessarily always work. I mean, we already talked about how there's a lot of uh, there could be a a, a good de- uh, degree of um, among population variation. So yeah, I'm not. I'm not totally sure. Do you think we can replicate the selection pressures? Replicate? You mean uh, in a captive breeding program? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I think that'd be extremely hard to do. I highly doubt so as well, honestly. I think there's too much happening, underlying pressures that we do not know about that are happening, um, and and yeah. Even if we try to control for as much as we know about the plant, there's some stuff happening on the phenology and life history stages that we cannot control because there's photo period that's included to that, and there's lots of factors that are kind of hard to control in a in a control in a captive environment. And actually, I was going to talk about the the graphs um, on Figure Two because I was very interested to see how um, Pinus halepensis was very different from Pinus pinaster in the serotony, um, depending on the frequency or infrequence of fires. Uh, yeah. um, you can see that it's very different in the case of Pinus halepensis, but it's not so different than Pinus pinaster. They're both significantly different, but there's also not as big of a difference in Pinus pinaster. Um, they haven't really specified why that is, but I did look up um, what the distribution of both species was, and basically Pyrospinaster that has a smaller difference in the serotonin depending on the frequency or infrequency of fires was probably because it has a distribution that was not even comparable to Pinus halepensis. Um, that's just an example, basically to, I mean, just to let you know, Pyrospinaster was like distributed all over Europe, but like from the coastal area all the way to the 
midland or inland. And the Pines-Halpensis was a bit more to the edges of the countries near the Mediterranean Sea. So all this to say that these species will have different behaviors facing different pressures because where they came from. So as Kyle was saying, if you don't get your seeds from that specific location that had these conditions, it's kind of hard to to know if the succession pressures will do the same and to 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 assess with confidence if these seeds will be able to flourish in that environment afterwards. Yeah. Well, it reminds me a little bit of the uh, the banksia that exists in Australia along the um, along the the coastal regions, but also inland. I mean, you you find I mean it's it's a very large large group, um, large genus rather, um, of of plants that essentially they they have a very a similar life history strategy in that they have these very interesting looking cones, look kind of like aliens. To be honest, I'm actually probably one of my favorite. If I had to pick my favorite cone, the Banksia yeah. are my favorite cone. <laughs> totally, um, totally agree with you. Right? They're yeah, because cool. they, yeah, yeah. They, yeah, they look like little like screaming baby heads or something. Um, uh, I mean, that's not how how I describe them, but <laughs> but, <keep> going. <laughs> but well, it's something very very kind of creepy about it, nonetheless. I mean, because it's like you have this cone and and there's these like smaller seed pods, and then there's a uh, this waxy coating, and so similar to the 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 you know a pine cone, you have. The, the fires come out, they melt these uh, this the waxy coating. Now the these um, these cones now without the waxy coating, now when they get wet, these seed pods in fact open up and inside the seed pod is a seed which has a, a large in which is able to, you know, for, for wind dispersal in seeds. So now, you know, kind of like a dandelion, it's just these kind of fluffy or or poplus. You know, they this fluffy kind of thing that's that allows for when the wind comes by to float and, and grab the seeds and disperse them elsewhere. Um, but but you see these plants growing both in the coast but also inland. And so one would imagine, um, especially in, in in a region where it's like salt water and, and fresh water, uh, that I can't imagine taking a banksia that one would find on the coast and, and transplanting a bit more inland. Or, or vice versa, that we'd see the same uh, the same success rate along the let's say along the coast. So this must be an issue. I mean, with with pinaster and, and halopensis as well. Um, given that you said that one was primarily located around the coast in the Mediterranean. Yeah, yeah, in um, Spain and Italy and along a bit more central Europe, but always towards Mediterranean. And so what? what and was... pinaster was more towards this inland. So what was the reason for, or not reason, but rather what for Halopenensis? Sorry, you said that was more inland? Halopenensis was more on the edges, on the more coastal the, areas. In the, okay, in the coastal areas. So yeah. so do you think perhaps that's why there's much less variation in the Serotony? Um, that's, um, yeah, that's, that's the point I wanted to make exactly. So there's a bit less variation, and that's why also, the, I mean, you see it in the graphs that the variation is huge for pinasters because the environment is so variable. You go from inland Spain to like um, coastal Italy, almost. Uh, it's a bit of a more it has a broader range in that sense, you know. It has different environments you can flourish in. And Spanish Halpensis is pretty much a, the, like, like a thin strip along the edges of different countries facing the sea. Yeah. Yeah. So similar similar environment throughout that um, throughout their um, their distribution, right? Yeah. Exactly. I would I would I would expect that from what I've saw on the map, it would be pretty much similar distribution. Yeah. Um, similar yeah, similar environment along the distribution. So perhaps that is the the solution to sourcing our 
um, our source populations in these reintroduction programs it's to go to or, or, or even that you know that's a good good reason to conserve these regions and, and try to preserve our our you know wilder quote-unquote populations um, because at least by maintaining some of these individuals um, and these stands in across these larger ranges we we maintain these larger this larger diversity so at least it gives us the ability to then reintroduce and move around species um, with more success so perhaps you know coming coming back about what we were talking last time about you know is biodiversity really the the answer is that what we're supposed to be serve, conserving perhaps this that you know this is the answer to that that uh, that kind of moral <laughs> quandary we had last time where it's more of a you know we preserve it along the entire range it gives us the ability to reintroduce species That's right. in, in other areas yeah. now my question is could we reintroduce a different species and that is uh, fire embracing and hope that they would be able to colonize the the area in a few decades in, a, in like several generations because it does have the ability again to to uh, to to use the bottleneck effect to be able to have that selection happening every year after every, every fire. So do you think we could introduce some uh, P. as an example, a bit more inland where their true distribution is outwards towards the coast? Do you think that in, in several generations that could be possible? Well, uh, well, there's a few issues. I think one would be, um, okay, well, first of all, maybe it just can't survive there at all. It's not uh, locally adapted to any of the conditions in that environment. And so you're wasting, you're wasting resources essentially, because you're going to, you know, transplant all these species, but none of them will, will take in the environment. And, and I guess the, the opposite to that is, well, they could become invasive. So introducing a species, um, a new species into an environment that it hasn't persisted in, in the past, I think generally is, is a bad idea because, um, just the environment has adapted together. So there's, there's very, um, kind of synergistic effects that are occurring there. And you, when you throw this new thing in there, you, you can completely destabilize it and, and just lead to all kinds of extinction and loss of function and all kinds of bad things. So I don't, I don't know if that's, I would err on the side of caution when we're determining if, if we should introduce a species to a, a new range or not. Right. I suppose theoretically, assuming you know all things equal, Pipanaster um, would be able to you know the 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 the, the Pinaster that are are existing in areas where there's frequent crown crown fires could be able to do just well in, in the uh, the area where P. halopensis is, but for the infrequent because the it seems like the, you know just assuming based on serotony. Um, you know the 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 range that exists for pinaster um, in this frequent fire areas. I mean, overtakes that of infrequent. So in theory, if if you know if all things were equal in a, its ideal scenario, I imagine yeah, one could replace it in terms of function, like Kyle mentioned. Um, there be there I I would say there's almost certainly going to be changes, um, and uh, I mean. At the same time, it depends on on do we care about those changes or not. <laughs> you know, do those changes benefit us? Maybe. Here we go. Back... Again. <laughs> Devil's I mean, advocate. No, yeah. it's it's. <laughs> no, I think it would work. And, and the thing is, um, they they speak about it in the paper, but traits like serotony, for example, like uh, 
it may be lost really rapidly. And instead of having these trees that kind of hold on to seeds in, in the um, within the crown, um, over time they may just just disperse them uh, faster because that would have an adaptive advantage when there's no fire present in the region. So you would probably see a, a rapid shift in um, sort of the trait expression of of these plants. So would you say it's almost like it's it like I guess there's two ways of looking at it. Either like it already has the seeds and then it just shifts how it disperses them, or we take one that doesn't have the seeds for as long and then expect it to eventually get seeds just as long, right? So do you, so when we when replacing or, or deciding on on these species that can be switched, it's looking at well what traits exist at a at a larger kind of on a larger spectrum or or sit sit you know at at both ends. So in other words, um, you know is it is it easier to get a, to take a species and expect it to you know take the seeds it has and just and just get rid of them faster, or is it easier to take a new take a species and expect it to just keep the seeds longer? Yeah, I think I think the first one is is easier, um, because the the okay so dispersing seeds is kind of the norm, right? So the other one is more, um, I guess, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's more derived than than uh, just pure regular dispersal mechanisms. And uh, well, you're actually you're kind of getting into um, what we were talking about a couple of days ago with uh, pre-adaptation. Yes, I'm glad you just said that. I was going to bring that up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, so thinking of cones, for example, we know that um, cones can open due to, to changes in uh, moisture gradients. So um, this is to do with like uh, phenology, right? So a pine might want to disperse its seeds at a certain time of the year. And so uh, the, the cone is a sort of time to open when uh, moisture gradients in the environment are at a, a certain um, a certain range that's favorable. And so if we think of that, this is kind of, if that pre-adaptive um, trait didn't exist, a uh, response to moisture gradients, we couldn't actually have um, serotony in the first place because serotony is contingent on having that, um, that trait be present in order to open when the fire comes. So I think that's it's a cool example of uh, sort of pre uh, pre adaptation. That's the uh, that's exactly what I was what I was thinking when uh, when, I, when I mentioned. So I'm really happy you brought that up. Um, well, uh, certainly. I mean, it's it's also. I mean, it, it's hard to hard to predict though, right? Which the which are the <laughs> cases of pre adaptation? It's easy for us to look back and and you know hindsight is twenty twenty and say, oh yeah, well this adaptation and this adaptation existed. So clearly this one became like this, right? But of course, as we, as mentioned earlier, there's no foresight to natural selection. So, you know, at the time, who knows what other adaptations existed in the population that we don't see any trace of today. Um, similarly, who knows what adaptations exist today that 100 million years from now, you know, some alien species that is that is you know studying this after you know humanity collapses, um, <laughs> looking at looking at at these pinus um, pinaster and thinking, hmm, you know, it must be because of of this that we now have, I don't know, I I have no idea what adaptation, giant you know watermelon sized pine cones or something. Um, so so I guess that that is the issue also with pre adaptation, but certainly this idea that. Um, that that these trait ne traits needed to have existed in the past for that for evolution to have sculpted it 
into kind of the form it is today um, underlies, I think, the the decisions that we we make when we're looking into to reintroduction and, and moving around some of these species. I'm I'm sure it must happen in mammals too. Yeah, I mean, well, you're kind of describing it's it's if we if we think of um, specialization, for example, it's you know the more specialized something is, the more um, I guess increasing complexity that you could assume for let's say like a morphological trait. But the thing is, like the more complexity that that's occurred over time, um, I guess the less potential for sh- for a, a rapid shift um, from one sort of uh, um, a strategy to another. So it's kind of um, uh, I guess that what I'm saying is generalists are are can easily adapt to changing environments, whereas specialists, because there's this increase in adaptive complexity that's been occurring for so long. Uh, if you get a rapid change in the environment, they, you know, they likely won't be able to persist um, unless the conditions are as they have been for however long uh, they've been adapting in that environment. So is this idea of of entropy and and chaos and order? You know, the more ordered something is, the the harder it is for it to become a, a different ordered form. Maybe. <laughs> I'm thinking of it now and I'm like oh, maybe this doesn't make sense no I mean it, it does it, like just just as a thought experiment I think it, it would make sense I mean the more because we know that evolution and well natural selection specifically can only can only act on on what's already there right on, on the raw material that it that exists in in for this process to occur whether that be you know um, analogous or not analogous but uh, you know the evolution of limbs in in um, you know tetrapods and and um, you know comparing birds and bats and, and things like that and we you know the same structures that have been adapted for different purposes and or similar purposes but in different ways um, I mean it, it, you know we can't expect you know these extremely random things to to come about right we have to work with what we already have um, so for example a bird isn't going to become a hippo you know maybe in, in a given amount of time but you know there's it has to have some more raw material to work with first the the jump between a hippo and a and a bird is a is a lot larger than let's say like you know a lizard and a bird um mm-hmm. and so i mean i can i can understand that 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 especially when we're looking at at the aspects of of pre-adaptation we need to have these you know at least some kind of a material raw material to work on so that you know in the future there's there's a possibility of adapting to this new environment and and presumably without that raw material well that's what leads to, to extinction yeah yeah and, and and yeah thinking of uh genetic diversity in small populations right so it's you know the more genetic diversity you have the more potential for uh phenotypic diversity and then the more um the, the more that natural selection can kind of act on that population I'm I'm really tempted to ask the th- forbidden question to use the natural selection concept <laughs> on the human species, but you know, in in a couple of sentences, what do you guys think of that concept? Do you think there's some selection happening in this day and age in our world on humans? I was burning to ask this question yeah. for the last few minutes. Because I think, uh, Arun, you're probably going to have a longer answer. 
I think uh, I don't think there's really any evidence that natural selection is still acting on humans, um, at least not in in developed nations. The thing is, um, you know, if we look across the board. Um, the thing to remember is the reproductive uh, reproductive output, right? So number of uh, genetic copies that you leave behind, and so I mean I don't see. I mean, you'd have to, I don't see any any change that's that's being any pressure being put on uh, put on the species right now. It's everyone has the potential to reproduce and and it's not uh, people's lives aren't being ended early. Um, and so that we don't really have the natural uh, pressures that we would have um, if we were in a, a different environment. We've kind of almost escaped the um, the evolutionary process. So to as a follow-up question, do you think there's any evolution happening if you say we escape the evolutionary process? Uh, yeah, I mean, there might be through uh, maybe just a drift or or some kind of uh, neutral theory kind of thing. But uh, in terms of directed directed adaptation, I don't think that's the case. but but yeah, I mean, certainly um, certainly there could be just, uh, just uh, chance variation or, or, or chance shifts in the, um, the allele frequencies of uh, the population as a whole. Chance shifts, but without selection. So it's interesting that you say that because with the shifts, we still require some sort of selection to, to see a change, you know, direction that will be taken. But without any further ado, Arun, what do you think of that solution? <laughs> I was trying to be nice. <laughs> um, I, I, I think we do have natural. I think natural selection is always affecting us. I mean, it's a process, right? It just, when, we, when we're looking at it, are, we're asking ourselves, well, is it a relaxed selection? Do we have the same level of, of, or rather the same type of selection as we did in the past? Let's say if we're looking specifically at, at Western societies, but this can go for, for many societies around the world. Um, no, I think I think that the types of things that that are required are different. I think we no longer need to be, you know, hunting and, and gathering in the same way as we did in the past. I think the way we we acquire food has changed. I think the way that we we reproduce has changed. Um, you know, from from a social con context, but also to um, just just the the way we we do things now um, from as as a technological aspect too. But I think selection is always acting. And I mean, a, a, I think a, an easy kind of way to think about that would be in immunity to diseases, right? I mean, the way, way we, um, we have our natural immunity and we have a herd immunity, I mean, these things are still happening. Um, and, and, and we pass those on through generations, right, it's for certain, certain forms of immunity. Um, so that is inheritable. And, and potentially there's genetic a genetic component to that too, not specifically on things you know, like, like vaccines, for example, but you know, if, if a certain disease is wiping out a large portion of the population, well, presumably the portion that survives is the one that is not, um, well, if you think of like the, the, the bubonic plague or something, you know, it's the portion that survives is the one that has a natural immunity to it for whatever reason that might be. Um, but now if we're, if we're talking about uh, different selection pressures, certainly we, we're living in a, in a time um, of plenty. We have lots of resources. Um, I mean, not, you know, distribution questions, things like that, notwithstanding and, and, and questions of, of equality of, of, of resource, um, usage, but 
we do we are living in a time where we're no longer restricted to you know small portions and and we have lots of sources of energy nowadays i mean sugar is dirt cheap um and that really is the ultimate form of energy isn't it um and uh, that we can digest you know until we start breaking down petroleum but um ultimately it's it's i still i honestly think you know we still have these selection pressures and and um and Diseases are, I think, a great example of that. And realistically speaking, I mean, at any given time, <laughs> to go down that route, because I know, I know you both are are holding your breath and wondering if I'm going to say it. Um, <laughs> it's it's you know, with certain once we hit a certain population and and certain diseases, um, communicable diseases specifically, are able to to transmit through the environment very quickly. I mean, we will still see that same that same bottlenecking approach that we've just looked at in in fires. The difference is that. Um, you know, assuming we get to that point where we we haven't, you know, completely destroyed ourselves in the process, um, you know, we'll get to a point where diseases will become a real issue where, um, you know, they, they spread so quickly. And we've seen that diseases spread very quickly um, compared to historically that, um, you know, we'll, we'll, it'll wipe out a large portion of the population and, and we'll we'll have this kind of this uh, kind of post-apocalyptic state as we have had in the past during our, our history as a species many times, in fact, um, to kind of, you know, do, do what, what every other animal does, right? Slowly rebuild. It's interesting because um, you talked about immunity and um, you said that we have more immunity or we are yeah, more immune organisms now, but at the same time, we are, I, I believe that we are immune just because of a system um the system we're part of right now in the western world at least and if hypothetically if the system was to collapse at some point are we really immune or are we even adapted to our world how like how bad would a selection be once selection truly occurs if it ever happens well i think it does occur it's just that it's a different type of selection right right now we're you know what are we selecting for we're selecting for individuals who um you know are more intelligent or more strong i mean that maybe that hasn't changed but what constitutes intelligence what constitutes strength does it matter anymore from a survival aspect if you're the biggest person in the room you know does it matter anymore for if you're the smartest person in the room and if you're the smartest person in the room, i mean is is who are we going to consider the most successful you know from a fitness perspective the person who's memorized the entire encyclopedia britannica or the person who can you know fix a fix a car tomorrow right what which one do we care about more um the person who publishes papers or the per person who saves lives um well the person has more time to produce offspring isn't it yeah i mean that's what i was going to say it's, it's nothing to do with any of this it's just whoever's producing the most number of offspring well they're leaving behind the most number of genetic copies and so the population's evolving towards whatever that is so of course. whether you're intelligent or not, that is no no impact. Well, it does for for aspects of like sexual selection, right? Right. But in fact, it, it's people people who are um, the more educated someone is, the less children they tend to have, right? Like we know this because of uh, people tend to focus on their career rather than having a family. So if anything, you could actually argue that there's selection against um, select uh, selection against intelligent people or people who work long hours. Oh, absolutely. I didn't. I didn't mean to say that there's that we are indeed selecting for, you know, people that work long hours or people that are, you know, spending more time focusing their career. But that's what I meant by 
you know, what is considered more intelligent, what is considered stronger, what, I mean, it's all context dependent, right? It all depends on the environment. And you're absolutely correct. It's at the end of the day, it's whoever leaves the most, most offspring. So one could say the, the person who starts having kids at like, I don't know, some obscenely young age is in theory more successful, assuming that their kids will survive. And yes, we do live in, an, in a society where there's a social welfare system, um, at least here in Canada, that supports supports that right and in other parts of the world i mean you might be left to fend for yourself um so you might think twice about having kids right away so it's it's all context dependent um and so one would one could argue that the individuals that are in areas that there is not as much of us of a well social welfare system might be more able to adapt to the um to an environment where these where you know where a society collapses and we lose these structures as you mentioned uh charlie um, that allow us to do this. But I think selection is still still affecting us. It's just that it's all context dependent. Um, you know, we build up, we've built ourselves and the societies around us. You know, we are the ultimate ecosystem engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, the beavers got nothing on us. And, um, and you know, we've, we've built this extremely complex organizational structure and, and we are very much dependent upon it as a species um, to, to survive. Um, but, you know, if we lose that, if we have a sudden collapse and we lose that and we are, we move from order to disorder very quickly, uh, whether that be through disease or warfare, well, I don't think the selection has changed. I think it's just a matter of, of the, the context which has changed, right? And so now we, we select, or, or the, the selection pressure amount hasn't changed, but it's just the type of selection is what's changed. You know, it's, I would, I would, disagree with the selection pressure amount that hasn't changed because I do think that there, there are, as you said earlier, there's some relaxed selection. And if there is relaxed selection, we can assume that in the eventuality that anything collapses in the structured world, the selection would increase in magnitude and potentially in direction as well. And that would cause essentially that, well, if intelligent people are moderately selected right now, well, later on, we'll just be the fittest people in the animal perspective the fittest people will be able to survive so in my opinion i don't i just think selection would vary in that sense now again it's very hypothetical i do not believe that will be apocalypse or anything in the next few years but i'm just very curious about what the world would be like if our highly evolved or highly intelligent species would have to face the same sort of pressures that the animal world experiences well, I think it's this idea that we, we, we think of ourselves as a species as being still being on this hierarchy, you know, and there's, of course, talk and it's changed. And we know we know from a um, from from us, like at least from a scientific scientific perspective, there's no hierarchy that exists. We don't have we, we, talk, we can talk about complexity in terms of a hierarchy, but it, it's not true. You know, a, a rat is no more complex or, or evolutionarily derived than a human being. Right. And so it's all context dependent. So, you know, one could argue that a rat is just as intelligent as a person. Um, one could argue, you know, in some cases, the rat is probably more intelligent, but that's a different story um, than, than some individuals. But it's more like we are very, very context dependent. Right. So for our context today, we are the most successful. But there's no guarantee that that's going to happen tomorrow because the context could change. So, you know, why 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 would a you know, why does a rat needs, need to know complex algebra? It doesn't. 
right? Does it need to know differential equations? No. <laughs> It'd be interesting if a rat did differential equations. I think that would make for some pretty cool, cool stories, certainly. Um, but does it? It'd be it'd be unnecessary, right? And most of, especially when you're looking at us as humans, I mean, most of the 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 at least what we like to call complexity from an intellectual uh, level and what has led to these these larger uh, societies forming has been the fact that we've had just tons of energy. We had tons of energy and tons of free time because we got better at, at sequestering energy from our environment. And from whether that be through meat eating or through um, the, the Green Revolution and, and um, or rather the, ag- well, the agricultural revolution, sorry, when, you know, 10,000 years ago, we decided, hey, we're going to start growing things instead of looking around randomly for them. Um, because the environment supported that that type of lifestyle, um, you know that's what freed our our resource to do all these other things like you know differential equations or you know doing a podcast. Um, but you know ultimately, that does that make us any fitter than any other species? I well, I would say that the need to be fit is not as strong anymore because we have acquired all these these ways of as you said very eloquently sequestering energy from our environment so does that make us fitter definitely not in my opinion but what is fit again again fit is very relative to the species you are and to the pressures you're facing and with the low pressure we're experiencing right now we cannot even uh, decide what is fit is fit being healthy and living a long life is fit having more offspring is fit being smarter and getting high degrees you know the question that's an open question but i don't think there's a true answer to to that you know ultimately it's what leads to most offspring but maybe you know having a degree opens up more reproductive opportunities and then you have many many children let's assume you get a job after your degree which is not sure in 2019 (laughs) <laughs> absolutely well i mean there's never any any full complete certainty yeah no the, so in a way you could say that our fitness has actually really increased by all the technological advances that we have the thing is that we don't actually maximize that fitness so we have the potential to to you know do nothing but reproduce our entire lives and like put out as many genetic copies as we can or or contribute to the next generation as many as much of our genes as we potentially could but we we kind of we choose to kind of reduce our fitness uh for our own um quality of life so people don't necessarily want to have 20 kids they want to do their own thing right so the potential's there we we've opened up this avenue where like yeah you could potentially be the fittest the, the fittest human on earth and and just do nothing but devote all of your time to reproducing but people don't choose to do that. So it's kind of a, a self-imposed reduction in our our true capacity for uh, reproductive output. It's it's the idea of, well, selection pressure. We keep saying a reduction in selection pressure, and, and I, I admit I, I said that earlier as well. Um, but a reduction in selection pressure is always relative, right? Um, one could argue that we have, you know, 300 years ago, we had to reduce selection pressure compared to from when we were like that weird half rat evolutionary ancestor thing. Um, it's it's always relative to a specific time period, a specific environment. Um, but if we look at it from an evolutionary time scale, 
who's to say that what we have right now is a relaxed selection pressure? Well, I think I think uh, we we can't look at it as like a single selection pressure, right? So it's we're looking at actually a selection regime. So it's a, a number of selection pressures that are being imposed on the human population, and so if you look at the total number or the total strength of all of those different selection pressures being imposed and you remove about half of them, then we could make the argument that, well, selection pressures, you, you know, uh, it, it is relaxed compared to um, whatever the the ancestral uh, selection regimes were like. So I, I think that's that's kind of what we're getting at. Does that make sense? I don't, I don't know. Oh, that, that does. certainly does. And, yeah, and I'm thinking at, at what point does that become a signal versus just background noise in the, in the evolution of, of Homo sapiens? <laughs> These yeah, some, I, sometimes deeper questions that, that, yeah. that come about. And also, why are we not just having tons of kids, guys? I mean, if we know we're reducing our selection pressure, maybe, you know, that, that's, that's the moral of the story, the message of today. <laughs> just go out and have tons of kids. <laughs> Social Darwinism. Right? <laughs> yep, it works, right? That, that's that's you know, I mean, if we make our own little, you know, well, little army. Well, <laughs> actually, having kids does reduce your fitness because it has a cost to make children, and for males as much as females. Actually, if you make many kids, if you're polygynous, then it's gonna cost you lots of money, which will cost you in any biological sense afterwards. So, should we go make so many kids? I'm not as sure anymore it's not as simple as just intimidating other females anymore it's more than that and that would be ha- that will have to be taken into account when it comes to fitness um yeah but i mean the thing is like like if you have like 50 children and you spend all your money on them and, and you have no life and that's it well you've already you already have 50 children so how many more do you need like why are you still trying to maximize your fitness after that point i guess is is what i'm saying well, if you have 50 children, you don't spend any money on them. Especially yeah, there's if, no need to do that, right? You can just run around and yeah, never get caught. <laughs> get caught. Well, I mean, that caught is the, it, that that's like a again that those are our laws and things coming into place. But in theory, you know, one could could have have many many children. I mean, in terms of just pure quantity of of gametes, and so I I think you know it's in theory that could be you know, a possibility. You just run around and a bunch a bunch of those kids won't make it, but a bunch will. It's just a, a numbers game at that point. Well the um, thing to think is that they probably all would make it, especially with the the way that our our societies are run nowadays. There's no there's no cost to really having a child. I mean it, it could affect your quality of life, but in terms of your child surviving, it's it's kind of a given that there there'll be some kind of intervention to help out these people. And again, I just want to reiterate that I don't think anyone's advocating for this. <laughs> you know, no yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And a disclaimer to the beginning. <laughs> well, certainly some of these these uh, these topics can can go that route, and and of course we can just blame Charlie if anyone does take this as advice as opposed to a, a thought experiment. Um, so Charlie, this is all on you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I think I think you know we've gone a little bit over the the hour here. Um, in terms of uh, in terms of the fire regimes, uh, in terms of whether we or not our fitness as a human population is increased, 
I mean, we've touched on a whole lot of topics, and I think there's a whole lot more we could we could talk for for days on end. I believe on this on this specific specific theme of of natural selection, um, and we see natural selection being the the kind of um, the theme of a lot of a lot of um, movies and TV shows nowadays. Um, I mean, The Walking Dead uh, brings this up, especially in their their most recent season. Uh, we see this this element in in what's the Purge. Um, that's right so so i think it's something that that people are very conscious about i think it's it's kind of a truism that people don't necessarily you know it can be hard to to stomach sometimes and it can lead to some some conversations that can sometimes get very very depressing um or or even potentially hopeless but i think it's still a very even though of course you know natural selection is is the mechanism um behind evolution there's still so much that that we have yet to know and and i mean we haven't even really truly touched upon the aspects of culture and and human culture i mean this is you know there, there's two sides to this this equation right we have our our biological side the natural selection but there is a case to be made that we have these you know these complex um these complex organizations in place um and and these cultural organizations in place to kind of limit the um the potential anarchy that would exist if we were to to solely go by our, our biological means so i think that's something we should certainly we will be revisiting this topic i can already feel it in my bones um that we'll be getting back to to this topic in the future